hello again to everyone. And if this is your first time joining us, my name is Shannon and I'm the Community and Events Manager at our firm, Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. I have the pleasure of introducing our speakers for today's presentation on divorced and separated families, holiday co-parenting tips, tricks, and common disputes. Before I do though, um, we would like to extend our gratitude to all of our audience members for joining us, not only today, but for all of your support throughout 2022. It's always such a pleasure hosting all of you, and I can't believe this is already our last virtual event of 2022. But uh, we do look forward to offering lots of new presentations and educational opportunities for you all in the new year. Now that you mentioned that, I know there's lots of lawyers trying to get their CPD credits available, and I think uh, maybe we could put in a link. We have an option where you can get all 12 credits or six credits, so just the DEI, whatever you need to complete your professional requirements. This information is uh, meant to be general information on family law matters and should not be considered as legal advice. And now I'm happy to share a bit about today's speakers, Daniela Derizzi, Rick Batika, and Russell Alexander. So first we have Daniela, who is an associate family lawyer at our firm where she takes pride in guiding clients through the separation and divorce process by listening to their struggles, worries, and needs and advises them on their legal rights, entitlements, and obligations. Daniela has been practicing family law exclusively since 2007, and prior to joining our firm, she ran her own practice. Daniela also always advocates passionately on her client's behalf to ensure that their objectives are met. She is a firm negotiator, trained mediator, and collaborative lawyer, and an experienced litigator. Rick is also an associate family lawyer at our firm and brings over 14 years of family law expertise. We have Russell, and Russell is the founder and senior partner of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. With over 20 years of experience, Russell offers a wealth of knowledge and expertise in collaborative family law, where he uses his experience with a client-focused approach by creating unique solutions for each of his clients to enable them and their families to move forward with their lives in a compassionate and collaborative manner. And now I'm going to let Russ take it away. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. We're going to have some polls. First poll we're going to talk about today, what do you do if the other household is sick, right? And this, you know, lots of people are still getting COVID. There's um, fluid going around. It seems that we all have friends or family members who are getting sick. So the pol Christmas holiday time, access using the old language. The other home sick, what do you do about access? We'll give everybody a chance to answer that. We did one of the questions that came in in advance. I'll throw it out to our panelists. My ex does not want me taking the kids to see Santa this year. Does he have the right to stop me? Well, I guess the first question is, is Santa sick, right? <laughs> Tying it into our poll question, but who wants to answer that one? I guess if they're going to take an issue over which mall Santa they're going to bring it to um no the answer is no <laughs> all joking aside you know they could both go to separate santas right um right. i guess we would need more information like what's the basis of the objection right is it a health risk is it religious is it just somebody trying to cause some trouble uh that's something to go twice yeah yeah we're in, and we're going to talk about two holidays or two christmases as well so lots of answers here. Um, let's see what our audience thinks about all this. All right, so ask for a COVID test or determine if it's cold or flu, 25%. 8% mm -hmm. ask for a doctor note, 29% review the decision-making powers 
um, in the separation of court order? Pretty good answer, I think. Uh, 28% depends on which household is sick, primary parent or parent with the parenting time order. That's an, another interesting thing to know. Cancel the parenting time, 3%. Um, or go to court for an urgent motion, 1%. So what do you guys think of these poll results, Daniela? I think, I mean, I think it's fair to see, you know, what the agreement, if there's an agreement, an existing agreement, um, what it says, who has the decision-making powers. Um, I think that's important. I don't think it's unreasonable to ask for a COVID test, especially if the other, the, the non-sick parent household has somebody who's, you know, immunocompromised or someone who's at risk. Um, so those are my two cents. Not me. Yeah. Rick, your thoughts? Does yeah, I agree with Sorry, child, I agree. What if the child's compromised health-wise or does the voice of the child come into this? What do you think? I think it does. Uh, it depends if there's underlying medical conditions, as you said, um, the age of the child, um, and, and overall just looking at, at uh, how serious, you know, if it's COVID, it's one thing. If it's a cold or a flu, is it just a little sniffle or... Are they, you know, are they bedridden? So I think you have to kind of look at all those uh, from different angles. Yeah, and I guess if you're counsel, you need to evaluate whether there's nefarious conduct going on here, right? You know, is this person canceling uh, parenting time two, three times a week, or um, have, have they made this claim before and taken the kid out to events? So yeah, good answer. So. One more quick poll question, then we're going to get into the substance of what we're talking about here today. So we want to look, know a little bit more about our audience. So if you can tell us who you are, and I think the poll question is coming up in a moment since we got Shannon on it. And we want to know if you're a professional, if you're um, a parent, um, you've got a number of options here. So we'll give everybody a moment to go through that. Let's... Um, Go back to our audience questions. Um, and this is an interesting one that came in advance. If one parent hasn't exercised uh, their visits or access time all year, do they have any rights? You know, and I'm thinking, you know, sometimes there's a court order for parenting time, but the person never followed it. Now it's Christmas time and uh, they want their Christmas time with the kids. What do you think, Daniela? You want to take a shot well, at this? I think, you know, status quo is important in this case. If they haven't been exercising it, um, then I think, you know, uh, there may be some other time in between the holidays, um, but why should the parent who's been doing all the heavy lifting, you know, all of a sudden lose out on Christmas if they celebrate Christmas with their children? Right. And, and it depends on the age of the child, right? You may, it may not be in the child's best interest to go for an extended period of time if there's been no contact and that bond's been lost, right? You know, you may want to do a phased-in approach or get some experts to help you in terms of whether it's in the child's best interest. Absolutely. All right, let's find out what our audience um, is, who our audience is today. So 64% lawyer professional practicing family law, 7% other area law, 14% uh, other field, we have four students with us today. Welcome. Going through a separation or divorce, 9%, or helping a loved one, 2%. So fairly diverse audience, uh, lots of professionals as usual. Welcome. Let's get into, um, into the substance. Um, 
seasonality. Rick. Yes, thanks, Russ. Um, so this is uh, this is basically what this show is about. Uh, and as family lawyers, uh, there's a huge seasonality component to family law, especially when it comes to uh, access or parenting time. Certain part throughout the year, certain uh, times throughout the year, there tends to get a little bit more busier. Now is one of them as we're approaching uh, the uh, upcoming holidays. Uh, so there's high peaks and low peaks. Um, look, there's no really hard and fast rule on how courts will approach this. Generally, it's always from the best interest of the child, and each case will turn on the facts of its case uh, of that case. Um, some considerations we're going to look at, and we're going to cover them a little bit more extensively. And I think um, the existence of a court order, separation agreement, the age of the child, residency of the child, or the if it's primary uh, with one parent or is it a shared parenting this is uh, between the addresses of households and the travel time that could be a consideration and what's the status quo in place especially if there's a consideration bringing a motion um, that's also going to be a consideration the court's going to take into account status quo is important especially on, on an interim motion because courts are in a difficult position of making factual findings on motions especially when there's conflicting affidavits. So I think that's kind of the general approach. Um, some of the times we'll, we'll see it as summer access or summer parenting time. Uh, that's a time where if there's not, there's not an arrangement in place that's already set out, uh, parties will want to visit that. Uh, and a sharing of the summer holidays back to school is one consideration. Uh, this happens whether one parent is withholding the child after the summer, uh, coming off of the summer access or summer parenting time, or even a transition from a first time child entering to first time school, let's say kindergarten, or starting full-time schooling at that point. And there wasn't really no previous, uh, there was a different previous summer uh, um, parenting schedule in place. And now that this child's starting school full-time, that's gonna have to be revisited. And then there's certain holidays and special events, March break, Easter, birthdays, Halloween, Christmas, and New Year's. Um, I think Christmas holidays is always the hot button. Um, March break as well. Uh, less so Easter, unless people celebrate it, birthdays. Uh, and I've noticed an, uh, an uprising in cases of Halloween in the last few years. Their parents are arguing who, over who's going to take a little Johnny or little Sally out trick-or-treating. So those are... Uh, that's the seasonality to, to, to the family law. Yeah, there, there is an ebb and flow, right? And I, I remember pre-pandemic motions court, usually the last court day before Christmas would be packed 40 or 50 cases and everybody is rushing off to court to try to get the Christmas sorted um, last minute. Um, and, and you're right, back to school, same thing. We always see a, a bump in disputes between separating parents and seems to be, you know, this is just a normal time of year for family lawyers. Unfortunately for our clients, it's um, quite troubling. All right, so let's go into a slot, a, a poll here, and then we're gonna take a look at uh, in a little bit more detail. So how should holiday parenting time be divided? You've got a number of options here, and uh, let's see what our audience thinks. Maybe we'll go to another audience question. All right, this is a good one that came in, I think, today. 
what options and tools can help parents make better decisions without it being a tug of war? So Daniela, what do we have in our toolbox to help parents through this difficult time of the year? Uh, well, I would say, I mean, obviously plan ahead. And if you can work with a parenting coordinator or a mediator to kind of sort out the holiday schedule well in advance, that obviously is more helpful and less stressful to everybody involved. So that would be my recommendation. Rick, advice? I agree. Uh, my advice is start looking at the, uh, and it's in the case of Christmas or uh, the winter holidays, start looking at, at the end of August. I mean, it's really two, three months away. You're so early enough to get into seeing a, a family professional like Danielle suggested or bringing this to a conference judge. And you're not rushing last minute. You're not looking at bringing urgent motions. So at least three, three to six months ahead, depending on the, uh, of the, uh, the time period that's being looked at or the holiday, that's my advice. And there's lots of communication tools out there too, right? My Family Wizard and other programs like that. Um, I guess my, my tip would be, if you think there's going to be a dispute or if there's historically a dispute, get to your lawyer early, like late November, because if you show up third week in December, there's not going to be a lot we can do, especially if there's no urgency uh, to get your matter before a judge if it has to go that far. But certainly collaborative practice, ADR, mediation, there's lots of tools available for parents to access without having to go to that extreme. All right, so let's see what our audience thinks about our poll question. So we're talking about, should there be, uh, how should it be divided? Primary parent to decide 5%, equally between the two parents, 39%. Uh, children should be allowed 1%, follow the traditional schedule, 25%. Parenting coordinator to decide if parents cannot, 22% or courts decide if parents cannot 8%. So um, looks like equally sharing the time, that whether, how, whether that's week of bed or swapping at Christmas and New Year's, or alternating seems to be our audience's um, take on this. Rick, what do you think of these results? I think it's, uh, they're fairly consistent what's, what's to be expected for us. Um, uh, it seems pretty, pretty even across the board, what I would imagine right. most people would say. So. Daniela, your take? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that, you know, I, I kind of I thought maybe the divided equally between the parents would have been a, a winner. Um, and I mean, children should be they be allowed to decide. Well, I guess it also depends on the age of the children. Um, but, you know, you want to kind of make it as fair as possible to both parents. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think I'm not too surprised at the the results. I remember one case, a senior case management judge um, was really reluctant to move the children on Christmas Day, right? Because there's so much traveling. And then, you know, you get up and then you go to the next house and do the present. And they thought that was not in the child's best interest. So, you know, try to keep them stable if you can. Um, and then maybe have longer blocks of time if that's more effective. But, you know, it's hard on families. Everybody Lots of families travel throughout the holidays. You've got weather, depending on the distance, and then you're disrupting the routine of the child as well. So uh, you're right. I agree with all, both of you guys. All right, so the current separation of court order, this is usually what we look at first when we get into these disputes. Daniela, Daniela can you tell us what we should be uh, considering? 
Yes. So, so first thing, yes, we always look at whether there is a separation agreement in place already or if there's a current court order. And what does it say? What does it say about the holiday schedule? Does the regular schedule, um, does the holiday schedule supersede the regular schedule? Does the regular schedule continue? It also depends on the family. You know, do they do they participate? Do they celebrate Christmas? Do they celebrate Hanukkah? So those are all also points. So you look at the separation agreement, and if you already have one, then you've already turned your mind to the idea of a holiday schedule. Um, and you know, it's your lawyer's job to bring uh, this issue to your attention at the time when you're preparing the separation agreement. Um, as lawyers, we can often offer suggestions of what we've seen in other cases that we've dealt with, um, you know, how other parents have dealt with the, these issues on other matters. Um, we can come up with creative solutions that work specifically for your family. I know that sometimes um, coming from an Italian heritage, sometimes Christmas Eve is more important than the Christmas day. So you kind of work out what works for that particular family um, if they celebrate Christmas. And, um, you know, it, it really also, more importantly, what works best for your children. So Russ, as you mentioned, you don't wanna to have too many transitions um, during the course of the two weeks. Cause typically this time of year, they get two weeks off for school for winter break. And so it's combined with three weekends, usually around a total of 16 to 17 days off. Um, usually it starts starting at the last day of school, which is typically a Friday. And then uh, the first day back um, in January on the Monday. Now this year, it's quite different. Uh, the Toronto board anyway, they finish on the 23rd. So it's a lot later this year. And they go back to school on January the 9th. So, you know, usually there's a split down the middle on the time off. So you have the two week break and they split down the middle so that each parent gets, you know, equal time with the children. Now, if it's a family that celebrates Christmas, then you have to carve out what we call the Christmas kernel. So that's uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and Boxing Day. So that will create some more um, transitions, of course, because you don't just have the one transition midway through the break, but you have, you know, depending on where Christmas and Boxing Day fall, you're going to have to carve out additional transition time during that period so that each parent gets to celebrate um, the holiday with the children. So option one, um, if you don't celebrate Christmas, then you have, you know, take all the days and divide them in half. You have the midpoint where there's a transition that occurs, and then the other parent has them for the second half of the break. Um, this is usually easier because there's only the one transition. Um, and, um, you know, it allows typically for eight to nine day periods with each parent. So if they want to travel with the children or if they have extended um, time with relatives, it makes things less chaotic. And then there's option two, um, when the, the parties do celebrate Christmas. So you divide the holiday in two, but then you carve out the additional time for Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day. And uh, regardless of where this Christmas kernel falls, you have, um, you know, that those three days equally shared. So you have one parent having them Christmas Eve to say midday Christmas day or in the afternoon. And then the transition occurs from the afternoon of Christmas day to boxing day. So that's typically, so that gets a little more difficult, especially if the children are a lot younger, there's a lot of transitions there, like I mentioned. And it also doesn't allow for like a long stretch of time at either party's home. 
Um, so it's, you know, and sometimes people find they get, you know, a little more extra time. The other party gets more extra time during, you know, this because of the way the holidays fall. But then that typically evens out. If you look at, you know, um, you know, the, the time during, you know, a few year time span, then there's always someone who gets a little bit more time than the other. Um, but that evens out because then the next year, then maybe they get more time and the other party doesn't. So it's kind of uh, the, the best way we can do it, given the way the holidays could fall. And it's always different every year. So that's, that's difficult. Um, and then lastly, if the agreement is silent as to the winter holidays and how it should be divided, then we have the dispute resolution options. So there's usually a dispute resolution clause that's in the agreement, and that should help the parties determine um, if they follow the protocol in the dispute resolution section, then it might help them determine how the holidays will be divided uh, for that year and then all the years going forward. It's funny, Daniela, we were talking about this beforehand. So many people rush off to court and they yeah. don't even bother reading their agreement or, uh, or the court order, right? That doesn't make judges very happy. <laughs> well, and there's usually, most agreements have a dispute resolution yeah. section. And I've seen this. So the court will say, did you follow the terms of your agreement? And the lawyer's got that tear in the head, like, look, like, <laughs> Uh-oh, I better, better start reading the agreement now for the first time. And there's a dispute resolution clause. So, I, and lawyers just, and sometimes judges just kick it out of the courtroom and say, well, follow the, follow that before you come here. Have you so seen mediation that? mediation first, just like your agreement says. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's quite common, but most agreements have a mechanism to deal with this, right? Yes. And, and it's important to include that for, for those very reasons. You're spending, you know, a lot of money getting rushing into court the last minute for an urgent motion. If you just have your agreement, you just follow the agreement and the terms of that, then it, it will be a lot easier and less expensive for you to resolve the issue. And if you are going to court and if you did try the dispute resolution portion, you know, don't get into settlement discussions, but identify the court that you did follow That's the steps and you did try it, it didn't work. For whatever reason and and so let the court know ahead of time that you did take that step yeah and that you were being reasonable that you did try you made the attempt right but, you know for whatever reason I, I think both parties have to compromise in a mediation and maybe that doesn't always work for the parties involved but at least to to give the effort and, and to for, show the judge sometimes the other side doesn't respond or refuses sure. to see the mediator the age, right? that's right and if you're the one pushing the case forward, that's probably going to look poorly on the side who's not being compliant with the agreement. Yes, exactly. Um, so the last part I wanted to talk about in, in this section is what happens if there's nothing? There's no agreement and there's no court order. So, you know, really it's the power of the status quo. So you look at the regular parenting schedule and see if that will accommodate the winter holidays. Um, so if you get every other weekend and Christmas falls on a Sunday, then the exchange, you know, happens at three o'clock on the Sunday, then maybe it'll be fine. Um, let's say in previous years, the parties always split up the holidays so that, you know, mom's side has a big party on the 24th and dad's side, dad's side always celebrates on the 25th. Then, you know, what the parties have been doing for 10 years is likely what a judge will continue that schedule. Um, 
So I guess I'll, I'll pass it over to Rick now because he's going to address the issues of what happens if you can't decide and there's nothing, the status quo doesn't work and um, you've tried the dispute resolution clauses in your agreement. And I think, I think we're going to run a poll too. Oh, while, are you? Okay. While we're uh, at this stage. Okay. So let's get see what our audience thinks. When a parent has taken self-help measures and to try to create a new status quo, uh, who should be allowed to choose a holiday schedule? And just on your last point, Daniela, for, for newly separated families, there is no status quo, right? Okay. The status quo is mom and dad or the spouses were at home with the kids. So, and the one, we do have some case law that suggests maybe for the year, first year or two, they, the court will do what they did last year or, or traditionally. Um, provided there was, you know, provided it was in the children's best interest. But um, sometimes courts will say, well, you're separated. So now there's going to be a new status quo for holiday traditions, right? And there's some case law on that. Did you want to get on this discussion, Rick, before we look at our poll results? No, I, I agree. And I, I think even in the absence of a separation agreement that has a dispute resolution mechanism, I think the new duties under the Divorce Act and the Children's Law Reform Act to explore other dispute resolution processes are what would, would uh, weigh into a factor in the court's consideration. Because if you're just showing up to court last minute, not looking at other possible uh, dispute resolution mechanism, I think that may factor into a potential cost argument if the parties overlooked it. So, and there's a resource argument too, right? Judges are saying they're overworked. There's too many cases in the system. Um, and they may not have the judicial resources to deal with Christmas access or holiday access or whatever the dispute you're having in December. Uh, and they may just put it over to a case management judge three, four months down the, down the road, but that's not going to help anybody. Yeah. Let's see what our audience thinks. Uh, thank you, everybody who's been participating in our polls today. Well, a parent who took self-help, 5%, other parent, 3%, the court, 13%. Third party decision maker, 12%. Default to the provisions of the current separation or court order. Clearly the majority at 68%. Um, and then that's assuming we have some, we have some ground rules in place. So let's take a look at what happens next. Um, Rick, we're gonna, we're running off to court here. Uh, okay. No status well, quo. There's no mo there's no dispute resolution. Well, I'm assuming there's no dispute resolution. There's no separation agreement. Let's get our robes on. Go down to the courthouse if they'll see us in person. What can we expect here? Okay. So last minute motions. Um, typically, they should be avoided. And the reason being is, as Russ, you said, resources may not be there. Um, right. Uh, I know I'm dealing with a case right now where uh, parties are looking at, at, at a motion and they're giving <laughs> motion dates in late January, early February for Christmas access. So. <laughs> That's for 2023, right? That's not going to help anybody. <laughs> right. If you think of it, the resources families are spending on this, right? You're probably going to be three to five grand for a motion per side for two lawyers properly prepared uh, with proper affidavits filed on time, the court's gonna hear the argument. 
then you're going to get a result that you may or may not like. Maybe you'll get a great result. But collectively, you're taking $8,000 out of the family resources. You could take the kids probably on the holiday to the Caribbean or Florida or somewhere for that price, right? If you just exercise a little bit of common sense here or some flexibility. But sorry, uh, what were you going to say, Rick? No, the, the motions that I think should be avoided because the problem is that is that you have to look at it from the sense of is the motion being brought before a case conference or is it being brought after the case conference where the issue is already conference? Likely, if the, if a conference has already been had and the parties and the lawyers turn their mind to the holiday schedule, they probably would have worked something into place. They would have had some sort of judicial input. A motion likely would have been avoided at that point. Um, not always, but most of the time. With the um, last-minute motions, if there's... Uh, no case conference, then the rules are clear. Um, you can't really bring a, a motion before a case conference unless you can show that it's urgent or not in the interest of justice. Um, and that's a high threshold. Uh, and, uh, ur urgency, as most family lawyers know, is the famous case of Rosen and Rosen, and it's determined in accordance with the jurisprudence and basically includes a high threshold. You're looking at abduction, threats of harm, dire financial circumstances. So parties are expected before just running off to court, throwing on their robes. Is there is there a, a case conference, uh, even an urgent case conference that the court can squeeze you in to bring you in front of a judge to try to deal with that issue and find out what those dates are? Ask the trial coordinator to give you the dates so you can, if you have to bring the motion, at least you can tell the judge, say, look, I, I didn't want to have to bring this urgent motion, but here are the, you know, here's the correspondence, the trial coordinator, we've asked for the uh, case conference dates, um, and, the date, you know, there were no dates available. Um, Just on that point, Rick, we're getting some comments from our audience. Um, looks like uh, Windsor SCJ requires motions to be brought by a certain date and they have a special day just for holiday motions. Somebody from the OCJ says usually they set aside a week for emergency motions. And I guess as a matter of strategy, if, if you're dealing with an unreasonable party, you get them into the hallway of the court or the Zoom room, there's a chance you might be able to strike a deal right before Christmas starts. Yeah, that's right. And I was going to touch on this point a little later, oh, but each, each jurisdiction has their own um, process in place for dealing with urgent situations. And it varies literally across from courthouse to courthouse. So you have to kind of check the practice direction for it. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting. Some courts offer the ability of urgent case conference. Some of them have a, a, a weekly to be spoken to conference that you get to go, go to a judge it, it happens, for example, every Mondays or Wednesdays at a certain time, you put your name on the list, if you can get on the list, um, and just speak to the issue to the judge at that point, and the judge will then give further direction at that point how to deal with it, or how to, how to um, try to resolve it. So it's, it's, it's helpful. So you, you almost have to kind of look at the practice directions, um, especially with the presumptive modes of hearing. Some courts, uh, and it varies across, across the board, have, have different mechanisms in place to try to avoid the urgent motion um, scenario. And, and as you said, uh, Russ, engage in settlement discussions, even if it's a short-term solution, 
just to kind of get you over that, over the problem of parenting time over the holidays and that can get you to the case conference. That's what's expected. Uh, and, and the case law is clear on it. Uh, judges want to see that the parties have tried to work the issue between themselves and what proposals have been put forward. Yeah, I find, you know, urgent case conferences are really effective because judges like to do them. They're very accommodating. And if somebody's up to some mischief, then the judge can tighten the deadlines and get some, maybe get you before a motions court judge. Uh, but usually most urgent case conferences settle the issue, is my experience. That's, that's right, though. And, 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 and in fact, that's been my experience as well. The urgent case conference judges are the to be spoken to if you're in, that, uh, in a court that offers that. Those judges are very helpful and they're able to kind of narrow down the issues, put a proposal in place that kind of gets everybody on board. And, and most of the time you're, you're not even going to the urgent motion at the end of the day. But let's flesh out this idea of urgency. When we were looking at in-person hearings, we took a pretty deep dive into, you know, there's several judicial regions, each has their own practice directions. Sometimes there's different practice directions within each region. Um, but in turn, so we get you know a patchwork approach across province, uh, despite the fact that we do have case law addressing this. But in my assessment, some courts treat urgency and emergency differently um, than other courts, right? Some judges will say the child's got to be boarding a plane before I make a motion, an urgent motion. Other ones are going to say, yeah, this is urgent. So what's your experience been, Rick? Uh, same thing. It depends on the court. And ironically, and I, I, I looked this up, if you look at the East practice direction, which is, let's say, the Ottawa region, and it's actually on the Superior Court website, and I'm quoting it, and then they're saying, urgent matters are matters which require immediate access to the court and for which it's impractical to follow standard procedures. And, and I quote, and it says this, generally a matter is urgent. If a court order is necessary to preserve life, liberty, or property, and time is of the essence. So that's a pretty high threshold. That's and it's on the right. Yeah, and, and it's surprising. Like it's it's post-COVID, it's on the website. This is the East Practice Direction. And it's 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 there in, in black and white. It's a very high threshold. If you're gonna be going to court and you haven't taken the time to try to work it out, you haven't taking the time to see if there's urgent case conferences. I think a judge is gonna, gonna take that, you know, take that into consideration, at least in terms of cost. Which real party property will speak or chattels? Like where are the Christmas gifts following <laughs> that definition, right? I don't know. Maybe there's jurisprudence on that as well. Right. But... Danielle, what's your take on urgency and the different approaches we're seeing? Yeah, like I think that uh, it's it is a little challenging sometimes when you do have all the courts dealing with it in a different way. It does mm -hmm. um, create some difficulty for lawyers too to kind of you know, especially when the the practice directions are ever changing. Um, but I do like I do like the implementation um, post COVID, if I could say post COVID, of this to be spoken to to deter like this triage um, type of. Uh, of uh, mechanisms that kind of, and, and I do like the case conference, the early case conferences, I found they really, most of the time, de-escalate yeah. the situation. And they really, sometimes parties go on a different path after that, and they just maybe get out of litigation completely and then just deal with a, a mediator. So I think they are effective. 
Um, it's just the difficulty is is navigating each court, the nuances of each different court and um, how they do things. And I want to be fair to the court. Every judge is doing the very best they can. They want to help families through these situations. It's just they have uh, limited time to deal with all these cases and limited resources. So they're doing, I think they're doing a fantastic job, but this is like family lawyers. This is a busy time of year for the courts, for the, um, the superior and the provincial court. Okay, so let's take a look at decision-making and parenting time. I think we're gonna kick this one over to you, Danielle. Yes, that's right. So um, if we can, you know, go back two years, <laughs> winter of 2020, very chaotic time uh, for family law in particular, uh, and the, for the world really, but family law in particular, a lot of uncertainty. Um, if you recall, we were still social distancing, uh, no traveling, um, parties were really unsure how to handle, you know, do I let my children go to the other household? Are they following the provincial restrictions that we have in place? Um, you know, even last Christmas when we thought, you know, the majority of the population was vaccinated, we were kind of coming out of the pandemic and then Omicron hit. Yeah. And then we had more restrictions again and then schools were closed for the first two weeks. So it just uh, created a lot of chaos. And um, I think the most difficult part for both lawyers and clients was that the courts were also so backed up. And, um, you know, we, we couldn't get a motion date um, regarding Christmas unless you did it, you know, two months prior. Um, and we had to get creative. As lawyers, we had to get creative. You know, harder to do multiple transitions between the homes. So, you know, we wanted to make sure that there was minimal transition time so that there wasn't, you know, COVID going to each household if, you know, if the children were infected or if one household was infected. And, you know, um, the court confirmed that whatever was in the agreement, it had to be followed. If there was a court order, there had to, it had to be followed. So there was a lot of, prior to that, a lot of people withholding parenting time because of using COVID as the excuse. So um, then we, we had this idea of two Christmases. So we started to see a trend where people didn't have as many transitions and they split the holiday in half and they essentially had two different Christmas celebrations. So one party would celebrate in the first week and the other party would celebrate in the second week. And of course, it's easier when there's older children um, you know, and Santa was, they didn't believe in Santa anymore. And, you know, it wasn't just the one day that Santa came and that was it. So that was obviously easier for older kids. Um, and, um, you know, and of course, double the presents. Who doesn't like that, right? So you have Santa coming twice to two different households. Um, for some families, it worked really well. And um, we have clients that want to keep it that way and, and have a more simple version of uh, the Christmas holidays and have just two separate Christmases uh, one week apart. Um, and for others, it didn't work as well, uh, but judges are fair. So uh, if one person got Christmas the last year, then usually by default, the other party would get Christmas if there was no agreement or court order in place. So um, that's, that's kind of what we had been seeing um you know with the COVID in the mix and how we had to kind of get creative with how we we did the, the winter holiday celebrations um then we have the voice of the child so what happens when you have a child who is old enough 
that they want to have an active hand in decision-making of how they're going to celebrate Christmas or where they're going to spend Christmas or the Christmas holidays. Um, so there's, you know, a case of a 15-year-old who has decided that he doesn't want to be with his dad for the holidays uh, because his dad doesn't really celebrate. And um, even though it's his dad's year, technically speaking, but instead wants to be with mom and mom's family who has a huge celebration and um, they, they couldn't get together the prior year because of COVID. So they want to have you know, a big to do this year. So you, you could obtain what's called the voice of the child report. And this typically only works for older children um, or children who are very mature for their age. And it can be done through the office of the children's lawyer um, or it can be done privately. So what the office, sorry, the voice of the, of the child is, it's typically when an independent third party um, who's not affiliated in any way with either parent um, or the, the lawyers that represent these parents, but they get an impartial view of what the child actually wants. So, you know, you know it can be hard for a parent to hear that the child does not want to spend Christmas with them um, and that it's going to cause you worry um, that, you know, mom or mom's family is trying to manipulate the situation. But typically these voice of the child um, professionals are very good at determining whether there's been any coaching involved and whether there's been any manipulation involved um, uh, to the children. So they can kind of really gauge that. They, they have a lot of experience. They can kind of get a sense of the child's age and stage and, you know, you know, how they're communicating their wants and needs for, you know, where they want to be. And they can usually pick off when there's been some coaching. Um, so that's, that's, it's good to use these type of professionals. They could be very helpful in that way if there's any parental alienation um, that's happening. And um, it's, it's a pretty easy uh, thing to obtain the Voice of a Child report. It's relatively inexpensive and it's a quick way to ensure that it's actually what the child really wants, as opposed to what one parent could be communicating to the other about what they think the child wants. Really, so. really helpful, thank you. So we're gonna run a poll here. Should grandparents have curved at time during the winter holidays? Give everybody a moment. Just to, to touch on voice of child reports, Danielle, and you're right, right? Oftentimes we'll do this privately and then the expert, uh, family professional or social worker will deliver the report to the parents. And maybe when, maybe the child's saying, I don't want to see mom or dad this year. And it's heartbreaking, right? Um, for that parent. But to hear it through a third party professional, oftentimes that settles the case. The parent accepts that this is the child's view and I'm not going to push the envelope. Whereas if we didn't have that tool, it'd go to a judge and a judge would make an order. So I think it could be very valuable, even though parents are getting heartbreaking information of it, the child's view, uh, for that parent to come to a resolution of the issue. Has that been your experience? Yeah, like I think it's um it's definitely diffuses the conflict because it's, you know, it's it's not not that it's easy to hear that your your child doesn't want to spend Christmas with you, but to, to get it from, instead of the other parent who you've been potentially, you know, in conflict with for, you know, either a short time or many years, it's it's just when a third party neutral is saying that, then, you know, it could just, 
you know, you can accept it and maybe, you know, think about doing some kind of therapy with your child or counseling to kind of, you know, maybe there's something broken there or there, for whatever reason, mom's family's more fun or dad's family's more fun and they have more cousins that I'm closer with or whatever the case may be, but it would help you at least diffuse the conflict and also maybe look into the relationship deeper and maybe repair that relationship if it needs to be repaired. Yeah, great tip. Let's see what our audience is thinking. Grandparent time, should we carve a date for them? Uh, yes, 41%. Well, you're going to get better gifts, right? <laughs> there. Um, no, 33%. Not during the three-day kernel, 22%. And only on weekends, 4%. For a lot of families, uh, we're going. To, let's talk about grandparent time. I'm, just, I'm going to keep you maybe to a minute or less, Daniela. But for a lot of families that are going through a recent separation, usually grandparents are the only stable factor in the, the children's lives, right? Especially if one parent's suffering from some kind of addiction or parenting issue. But what do we need to know about grandparent time, Daniela? Yeah, so it's a newer area of law, and but we're seeing more and more of this. Now, I mean, it, it's going to be a very fact-driven analysis. Um, you have to look at the best interest of the children and the relationship that the grandparents have with the children um, before separation and after. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, the, the grandparents have acted like caregivers to these children, you know, before they were in full-time school, they may have a very close bond. So it, it's going to depend on, you know, and, and then of course, like, like you mentioned, Russ, like if there is, you know, a compromised parent, like if the parent is, you know, going through addiction issues or mental health issues, then, you know, maybe, the, the grandparent is the, the stable force on that side of the family, and it would be in the child's best interest to have some time with the, with the grandparent. Yeah. Or even if one parent could be sick with COVID, right? We're seeing a lot of this. The kids are being sent to the grandparents while the parents work through their um, illness. And um, I've seen that as recently as a few days ago. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's go back to, let's do another poll because we love the polls. We want to hear what our audience is thinking. Should the courts create a standard holiday schedule uh, for the par for the parents to follow? Uh, and Rick, I'll just give you a few seconds. Did you want to say anything about grandparents or the voice of the child while we're waiting on these poll results? I think you might be muted. Sorry, Russ. I, I agree. I think uh, this is a new area of law, especially with the changes in the legislation. Um, specifically uh, allowing you know grandparents to have contact with their grandchildren and it's each case going to depend on, on the facts uh, so yeah I think that the change you'll see you'll see, see those in the divorce act especially uh, the case law traditionally said grandparents so the parents work at eight then grandparents can't have any access there was some trial decisions that said otherwise and that was the Ontario Court of Appeals decision but it's a contact order with the parent or other party. And um, certainly grandparents fall into that. Let's see what our audience thinks. Uh, standard holiday schedule, 19% said yes. 39% said no. Interesting idea, let's hear more about it, 42%. Um, all right, so we will talk more about it, maybe not today, but the, you can see it, it's not much different than standard precedent um, separation agreements or court orders, and you simply check, check the or parenting times as well. 
religion and participation in religious celebrations. Rick, I'm probably going to keep you to maybe a minute or two. What do we need to know? Okay, so uh, I mean, the winter holidays, uh, different religions celebrate. Uh, they have different uh, events or uh, observances that they have and how they celebrate well, it. Most about all religions in two minutes or less. <laughs> Just... <laughs> So I, that's going to be that's going to be hard, and I don't think the, the viewers would appreciate that. It won't do uh, any service to it. But right. generally, generally, like this is not uh, a question of the courts don't look at it. It's a question between two religions being uh, pitted against each other, or two different religious beliefs being pitted against each other. Um, the courts are want to encourage um, that the child be exposed to both uh, religious uh, celebrations. Um, absent evidence that shows exposure to the religious beliefs are harmful to the child. Uh, even the parent who has sole decision making can't limit the um, religious practices or religious celebration of the other access parent or the uh, parent who doesn't have the primary decision making over that area. Um, and, and I think it goes back to the question of, you know, being creative, if you can, if you can deal with this in advance, uh, you can look at a calendar and know if you know, especially with during the winter holidays, if two religious um, uh, celebrations or, or, or holidays will conflict with each other. What, what will you do? And I actually had an interesting case, and I want to quickly share with the viewers. Um, and this was done back in August, September. We were able to resolve it. Father. Uh, um, was Jewish uh, and he observed the Jewish faith. Mother celebrated Christmas. Uh, what do you do in the years where Hanukkah and Christmas fall exactly on the same day? So we carved out a very elaborate plan. We looked at which years Hanukkah would, would uh, cross over into the, or conflict with the Christmas holidays. And then in that situation, the father uh, chose, you know, he, it was important for him to choose, celebrate the first day of Hanukkah, the last day of Hanukkah, and let's say day number four. Um, and we, we kind of had a schedule in place that um, if day one fell on Christmas Eve, um, the father uh, could choose to celebrate that on Boxing Day or um, it was, it was, it was, it was a very elaborate plan that I think the judge commended the parties for working it through because they took the time to put a, a schedule into place to allow the, the child to celebrate both uh, religious holidays and, uh, and, and to avoid running to court last minute. So I think that's my take rest in that last minute. That's excellent. Thank you. And we're going to include some more information in us on the show notes. I'm going to give myself 20 seconds or less the cost of being right. And we talked, we touched upon this a little bit already. <clears throat> Although you may be right with your court order or your um, separation agreement and the decision you're making, or right into going to court to enforce it, there's the legal cost of all this, right? <clears throat> Several thousand dollars if it's a disputed motion. There's the emotional expense of going to court. There's the harm you may cause to the child having uh, parents be conflicted over the holiday break. Um, so just be, even though you may be correct, you may want to compromise, you may want to be flexible because being correct has a price to it. 
especially if you're going to enforce it and there's going to be um, there's going to be some harm that's going to come from that, unfortunately. So that's just something to be have in the back of your mind. Family dispute resolution, 30 seconds or less. What do we need to know here, Daniela? Yeah, so I'll be very quick. Um, so, you know, it, obviously, as we've discussed already in this panel, it's it's <clears throat> too expensive to bring an urgent motion each year for Christmas. You could go on a holiday, as Russ suggested, <laughs> with those funds um, for the amount of money you're going to spend on a motion. So it is also not in the best interest of the children to have this continual conflict every year. It's supposed to be a joyful time of year. It's supposed to be an exciting time of year, especially for children. Um, so collaborative practice, amazing resource. Um, you have, you know, um, mediation, you have uh, parenting coordinators, you have mediation arbitration, if you can't get to a final decision in mediation, and you have negotiation. So there's, there's many different ways other than court um, to resolve these type of uh, issues between the parties. All right, case law, we're going to go one or two sentence explanation. The case is going to be in the show notes. Um, Rivero, right, what's our takeaway here, Daniela? Yeah, so that was the uh, one of the first COVID cases that came out um, in March of 2020. The judge found that there is a presumption that all orders should be respected and complied with. That's the, the biggest takeaway from that case. Mitchell and Joy, I've got that when parties cannot manufacture urgency by their own delay in commencing proceedings. So if you didn't call your lawyer until December 20th, you can't go to court and say this is now urgent. You've got, got to be diligent. Okay, Young and Young. Rick? That's mine. The takeaway is absent evidence that shows exposure to religious beliefs would be harmful to the child. It's not appropriate for one parent to limit the religious practice or religious celebration of the other even where that parent has sole custody or sole decision-making responsibility. And the court in that decision looked at harm as being uh, an exercise by an access parent has to be a substantial risk to the child's physical, psychological, or moral well-being. Dave, you got yell quickly, one sentence or less. Uh, basically, this case is, is talks about urgency uh, and the factors that a court will consider. Uh, and I spoke about them, case conference dates, um, looking at the uh, practice uh, directions, uh, whether parties have tried negotiation, whether it is a case of urgency, such as a high threshold of abduction, threats of harm or dire financial circumstances, or other considerations such as domestic violence, mental health issues, and or substance yeah, issues. Alcon uh, Hall and Hall Court says it's been shown it's not being shown that it's in the best interest of the children to continue with previous family traditions to the exclusion of the other parent. So that argument's not gonna to go too far. Um, you're separated, you're gonna have new family traditions going forward, Shannon's back, we're gonna do some Q&A and wrap this up. Welcome back, Shannon. Thank you very much. Um, and as Russ mentioned, I will be including those cases in the show notes uh, for tomorrow's email, just in case you want to have a look at those any further. Um, so just before we sign off here, a question that came in from the audience is, if one parent hasn't exercised their visit all year, do they have any rights? Danielle, thoughts? Yeah, I think we, we touched on that a bit during this presentation. Um, it depends on the age of the children. It, you know, if they had no contact at all, then I don't think it's wise or in the best interest of the children to just all of a sudden have contact. There may be reintegration therapy that's required, um, or you just, you know, have some 
short visits supervised. It depends on the, the way that the reason why they haven't been in contact. We do want to thank our audience once again for joining us here today and for all of your support throughout um, the past couple of years with our virtual event series. It's always such a pleasure hosting everyone. Um, and thank you to all of our speakers today, Daniela, Rick, and Russell. We look forward to returning in the new year on Wednesday, January 4th with a presentation on Divorce Day in Canada. And I'll be providing you with information on how you can register along with those additional resources. And as always, we welcome and are very appreciative of your feedback. So again, a heartfelt thank you to all of you. And we are wishing you and your loved ones safe and happy holidays. Take care, everyone. Happy holidays. Thank you, everybody. Daniela, Rick, fantastic job. Shannon, fantastic as always.